If you would now stand for the reading of God's holy word. I'm going to read this morning from Genesis chapter 1, 1 through 4. And I'm going to skip to the end of Genesis chapter 1, excuse me, the end of chapter 1, verses 31 through the beginning of chapter 2, verse 3, and then one passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning there the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth was finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning that by the light of your word, the light of your gospel, that you would shine into our hearts and that by that light we would be changed according to your image, by the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name and for the sake of your Son. Amen. Well, here in North Dallas, you can't miss the approach of Christmas, can you? We know it because we can see it. The lights go up all around us. That's a good thing. You know, we've actually found that we can save a little bit on our electrical bills by just opening our blinds at night and reading by the light of the Christmas decorations in our neighborhood. Sort of feels like Times Square at times, but, you know, um, uh, it chases away the winter blues a little bit. I've also heard it said, I think it may be just urban legend, but that there's one yard in particular, and maybe you think it's yours, I don't know, um, in our neighborhoods that can be seen from space. Now, I have no confirmation, but would it surprise you? Probably not, right? Uh, There is a visual connection without doubt between Christmas and light in our own neighborhoods. And that connection is also present in the imagery in the Bible. The Bible describes Jesus Christ, the coming of Jesus, as a light who has come to pierce the darkness. If you've been with us this fall, then you know that we've been studying 1 Peter, uh, his letter. And we've also used vignettes from his life alongside his letter to sort of give context and shape. And Peter himself makes the connection between Jesus Christ and light. He tells us in 1 Peter 2.9 that in Jesus Christ we have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So what does that mean? This morning we're going to start from the beginning. Because when God himself wants to form and fill his creation with his love, when he wants to shape his world into a place that's teeming with life, he begins with light. 
He says, let there be light. And the only time that that passage is quoted verbatim in the New Testament is here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Paul writes, for God who said, let the light shine in the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is inviting us to do here as listeners is he's inviting us to reflect on how the original creation story serves as a parallel for what God is doing in our own lives, what he's doing in our own hearts. Paul is urging us to connect creation with Christmas. He's urging us to read Christmas, the Christmas story, as the story also of the new creation. So two things I want us to see this morning together as we sort of coordinate these passages together. The first is this. I just want you to notice the pattern of the original creation. The pattern of the original creation. And secondly, I want us to look at still the far deeper promise of Christmas. How does the story of Christmas pick up and even deepen God's work of creation? Let's look at the pattern first in Genesis I want you to notice three things here. I want you to notice the before. I'm going to use alliteration just because I love you this morning. I want you to notice the the before in verses 1 through 2. I want you to notice the beginning in verses 3 through 4. And then I want you to to see the benediction in verses 131 through 2, 3. First, the before. Look at me again at verses 1 through 2, the opening verses of Scripture here in Genesis. What exactly are the opening verses in the Bible describing? Well, as one of my professors put it, he says the author here is describing a background event that takes place prior to the main storyline. One and two are a background event that take place prior to the main storyline. What is the main storyline? Well, the main storyline is in verses 3 through 31. It is the story of Yahweh as the craftsman of the world. It is the story of Yahweh as the one true God carefully and artfully moving creation, moving the world from a place of emptiness to a place of flourishing. So the first two verses tell us about what the world is like before God sort of puts his hands in the clay, so to speak. And what does it say? What is the world like before God begins shaping and crafting it out of his love? The author says it is formless and void. Formless and void. What does that mean? There's only two other places in the Old Testament where those two words are used together. Once in the book of Isaiah and once in the book of Jeremiah. And on both occasions that phrase formless and void refers to a land that is under God's judgment. In fact, it's in many ways, the very reversal of this process. A land that was once teeming with life, a a land that was colored and cultured and full, now turned into a place of ruin. It's a land that is now uninhabitable and unproductive as a wasteland. You'll remember it was about, I guess, maybe a year ago, maybe 18 months ago, that we had a series of earthquakes here in North Dallas. Right, fairly small for us, but way out of the ordinary, something we weren't used to. Saw a funny picture floating around the internet when we, we had those earthquakes. It was, the, it was a picture of a paper Starbucks coffee cup 
It was turned over on a side table and a little bit of coffee was spilling out. And on the picture it said, Dallas earthquake 2015, we will rebuild. (laughs) That's funny because it's making fun of ourselves, but it's also funny because those words do have a context. I mean, you've seen places even recently on a TV screens where earthquakes have devastated whole cities. Think about Haiti in 2010. You've seen Nepal in 2015. Do you remember those scenes? Uh, The villages, the towns look almost lunar, don't they? I mean, devastated, uninhabitable. That's formless and void. And what Paul is inviting us to do is to consider that this might be exactly what a heart looks like trying to live apart from God. Where is God in the process? Well, notice in verse 2, the writer says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Don't miss that. It just means that God is actually there in the emptiness, hovering over it. The word hovering is also used in Deuteronomy for a mother bird who is sort of fluttering over her nest as she cares for her young. Parents, maybe you've been criticized before for hovering too much. Well, now you can say you came by it honestly, right? That God does it too. Where is God in the darkness? Where is God in the emptiness? Where is God in the void? You know, it's a question that the psalmist asks. It's a question that Job himself asks. It's a question that Israel asks over and over again throughout her story. It's a question that Jesus asks. Probably a question, if you've been honest, that you've asked before as well. Where are you, O Lord? And Genesis anticipates and even replies early on that God is there, present even in his absence, hovering, caring for his world as a mother bird, readying to act on her behalf. There's just one more thing I want you to see in the opening two verses of the Bible, because I think we sort of tend to miss this. And I just want to point it out. What does the creation have to offer God at this point in the story? So he's about to bring all of his transformative work to bear on this land. And what in the world does the world have to bargain with to get him interested in the first place? Absolutely nothing. And this is perhaps the first hint of the gospel in all of Scripture that that God Himself comes and He comes to work in the destitution of an empty world, and He does so by grace alone. What do you have to offer God this morning? May Genesis 1 1 through 2 be an encouragement to you. You don't need anything an empty hand. A destitute life, a chaotic world, (laughs) a poor spirit. Those are the very conditions in which God himself delights to work, and he does so always by grace alone. So that's the before. Let's look for a moment at the beginning, verses 3 through 4. What is the first thing that God does to shape the world according to his love? Well, verse 3 says he gives light. God looks at the world, begins to shape it, and he makes light to shine in the darkness. Now, I'm sure this has happened to you before. Maybe you've been in a crowded place before. 
uh, um, uh, with strangers and the lights have gotten cut off or they've gone out. You see, that's happened to you before? A public place? And then maybe just a moment later the lights come back on and what is the unanimous response in that moment? Everyone applauds, right? There's joy, there's collective joy. Why is that? Well, we love the light. The light we think is good. Well, imagine for a moment if the lights come back on and for whatever reason, I don't know what's happened in the darkness, you don't have any clothes on, right? All of a sudden you are exposed. Would your response be the same? Probably not. What does that tell us about light? Light is non-discriminatory. Light reveals not only the things that we want to see, but light also reveals the things that we don't want to see. It exposes to others the things that we wish they would never see about us, and that can be a very, very painful experience. When I went to seminary in St. Louis, Jada and I didn't know anyone there, except we packed our bags and all of our belongings, which weren't very much, and um, we moved up there with two very good friends of ours, Uh, with whom we are some of our closest friends today. I'm going to out him this morning. He is the campus minister of RUF at Stanford, Britton Woods. So now you know if you want to give him letters or anything like that and tell him you heard his name this morning. So Britton was there with us, and we didn't know anyone. And um, one of the first classes we had to take was a class called Spiritual Formation, and it was with a dear professor named Dr. Douglas. And Dr. Douglas would have all the students over in small groups to his house. On this occasion, we went to his house, and I got to talk to Dr. Douglas, and somehow I found myself in a conversation with him over to the side, and things were going really well. Now, remember, I don't know anyone. No one knows me, and so I'd like, at the very least, not to embarrass myself a little bit, right? Be nice to make a good first impression. So I'm talking to Dr. Douglas, and the conversation is flowing really well, and all of a sudden, somehow, I think it was because he went to high school in Tennessee, um, the, the, the subject turns to Tennessee high school football. Now, if you know me, you know me that I, I grew up in Tennessee, so I got this. I'm not worried at all. Conversation's going well, and all of a sudden, he turns to me, and he looks and said, did you play, did you play high school football? And without hesitation, I looked back at him and said, absolutely, yes. Now, you need to know that I've never played a down of organized football in my life. <laughs> in my imagination, yes, I'm very good there. Um, I know it's surprising. I know maybe I look differently. But I said it, and I could not believe I said it. I just could not believe. I mean, I'm, here I am talking to this man. He's got me in his home. It's my first week of seminary, right? He's a seminary professor, and I have lied to his face. <laughs> and so he looks at me then and says, what position? And so I have a chance to correct it, right, to, to say, you know, I'm sorry. You know, I don't know why I said that. And I looked at him, and I said, cornerback. And I returned kicks, because why not? (laughs) And he looked at me and said, well, you look fast. And I said, yeah, I am. I'm very fast. (laughs) And so I got out of there as quickly as possible, changed the subject. And I went to my friend Britton. This is where he comes into the story. And I I confessed what I did. I was just sort of riddled with guilt and didn't know what to do. And with all the empathy in the world, he looked at me and just started laughing hysterically. And I said, here's what I'm going to do. Look, um, I'm going to let it go. 
Um, unless he brings it up again. If he ever brings it up again, I'm going to tell him that I lied to, I lied to him. I'm going to ask his forgiveness. But if he doesn't, we're going to call this a mulligan, all right? And um, we're going to let love cover a multitude of sins, and we're just going to move on. And um, so he heard that, and, and later that week I had a one-on-one with Dr. Douglas. Well, Britton went in early and told him that I, he had to bring it up again. So <laughs> w- w- with friends like that, who needs enemies, right? So he did. He brought it up, and, um, and at that point he felt so bad for me um, that he was very, very gracious, and I apologized and um, confessed under the weight of guilt and shame. I'll tell you that story because it's a funny way to say this. When I sinned against him, I want you to notice my first instinct was not to let any part of my failure, any part of my shame come into the light. I wanted it buried. I wanted it forgotten. I wanted it hidden. I think it's important that we don't sit here this morning and pretend that we are a people who unanimously cheer the light. A people who cheer the indiscriminate exposure of who we really are. You know, one of the buzzwords today is community. And we talk a lot about clamoring for community. We talk a lot about how important relationships are. Not just in the church, but outside the church. About the experience, the importance of knowing and being known. But we want all of that stuff on our own terms. And yet... It is the pain of exposure. It is the awkwardness of seeing and being seen. The awkwardness of light shining into the void that stands in the creation account as the very first step in God shaping the world and Him forming and filling you. Let there be light. Later on in the New Testament, Jesus is going to say, come into the light. John's going to say, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It is without fail. If we want to move from a place of emptiness to a place of flourishing, we need light in our lives. The risk of seeing and being seen to drive the darkness away. And so God begins forming and filling his place with the introduction of light, and he saw that it was good. Notice the benediction now in chapter 1, verse 31. The author says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. I'll be brief here, but this is just the purpose of God's work. When all is said and done, when the waters are swarming, and the air is teeming, and the trees are beginning to bear fruit, God looks at the final product and he says, behold. And that means he wants you to look with him. (laughs) Behold, look with me. It is very good. And friends, that's what we call a benediction. A benediction is a blessing that's given at the finish line. It's a blessing given when a work or a life or a project comes into full view and we're able to say, that is very good. And here God is so delighted with the world that he has made and shaped that he takes the whole next day just to marvel and to revel in its goodness. 
The pattern of the original creation is from uninhabitable, unproductive expanse to a place that is now teeming with life and virtue. And don't you hope one day that when you finish your own journey, that that sort of progress would be said of you? That when all is said and done, when you've come to the finish line of your life, that someone would look at you and say, behold, very good. Here is a man or a woman or a child who is nothing left, nothing less, excuse me, than a gift to the world. I want to consider now just for a moment how Christmas intersects with all of this and brings with it a still deeper promise. You probably know, but the story of Christmas is replete with images of light. John retells the creation story in the opening chapter of his gospel, and he describes the coming of Jesus as the light that is shining in the darkness. When the angel of the Lord appears to the shepherd at night, the shepherds at night, Luke says that the glory of the Lord shone all around them, that they were overwhelmed by the light that was brought into their lives. The wise men, the magi, are led to Jesus Christ by the light of a star. Isaiah's prophecy about the Messiah names him as the one who will be a light to all the nations. We can connect the dots. The Christmas story is God redeeming and recreating his beloved world in the advent of Jesus the Savior. There is, however, one significant difference, and I don't want you to miss this, and I want us to land here this morning. You practice this difference every week if you're a Christian, though you may not know why. In the creation story, when does God rest? When does he rest? He rests on day seven, doesn't he? When all the work is finished, then the blessing, the benediction, the very good comes when the finality of God's work is in view on day seven. This is why Israel is commanded in the Ten Commandments to sanctify and to worship and to rest on Saturday as the Sabbath, because that is a reflection of the order of creation. But you'll notice, right, that we don't do that. We don't do that. We sanctify and we rest on the first day of the week, on Sunday. Now, it's not a big change for you, but but consider how big of a change that was in the early church. When many people that were coming to Christ were, were Jewish. And they were moving the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. Because in their minds, the Sabbath itself had shifted. Why is that? Why all of a sudden does the early church sanctify day one and not day seven? Well, here's a hint. It had nothing to do with college football. (laughs) Nothing to do with the lake. It was because the early church recognized that God finished his work of new creation on a Sunday. That the Christmas story told in the opening chapters of the gospel finished on a Sunday. That the work that began in a manger was put to rest in an empty tomb. From an angel appearing to the Virgin Mary to an angel heralding Mary Magdalene. In the life of Jesus Christ, the early church recognized that God was giving birth to a whole new world. The sun was coming up in a whole new way. 
Now, why is that important? It's just a different day, right? No, to them it wasn't. (laughs) To them it meant this, the proclamation that all the promises and approval and joy of God that was previously held out at the end of a life on day seven was now available on day one. That is to say the very good of creation, the, the final benediction, the final well good, my, well done, my good and faithful servant. It is not something you have to wait until your life is over, until your life comes into full view to get. It's not contingent on how hard you work or, or on how well your discipleship goes. It is now something you receive at the very beginning of your journey with God. You see, Christmas changed the story because Christmas changed the work-rest pattern forever. So that now in Jesus Christ, we're no longer a people that works for blessing, we're a people who now work from blessing. You can see it like this. What What were the final words of Jesus Christ on the cross? It is finished. Doesn't that sound remarkably like what God himself says on day seven? The final words of Jesus Christ on the cross are the very first words of the Christian life. And I want to just share with you for a moment why this matters, I think, in a very practical way. A little over a week ago, I had an opportunity to go on a mission trip to to Cuba. And we were with a team there uh, of men. Um, And our our job was basically to to pair with a a, a local church who had been making contacts, and we would go into the the homes of these contacts who had agreed to receive us to share our stories. I should tell you that that, um, for many of these folks that we met with, the local church there had been doing contact work and praying with them and for them for years. And we got to go in there and talk about what was important to us and, and they would share what was important to them. And, and for me personally, I got a chance to share on, on multiple occasions of, of how God had changed my life. And many there that I got to share with uh, prayed to become Christians for the first time. Really great experience. But I want to tell you about one woman named Dahlia this morning. D-A-L-I-A. If you think about it, would you pray for her? Dahlia is about my age with young children. You should know also, just a little background, that proselytizing is illegal in Cuba, and so um, discretion was important. I found myself in Dahlia's house one day, and um, she had said that she would receive us. There was a man that came in um, that was already there who also wanted to listen to the message, and I learned later that that this man was a high-ranking government official in Cuba, our, our, um, our version of the FBI, basically. And he sat beside Dahlia and he listened and I I started talking to Dahlia and connecting with her and I could tell through the tears in her eyes that um, the gospel was hitting home. That she was hearing the story of Jesus for the first time in a way she had never heard it and she wanted some of what he was offering her. At the end I got a chance to pray with Dahlia and, and Dahlia prayed to receive Christ to become a Christian and at the very end I got a chance to take her hand and to look her in the eye with this Cuban official watching over her, and to tell her something that I think she had never considered possible in her life. That at this very moment, God himself rejoiced over her as a daughter with whom he is well pleased. 
that she didn't have to wait until the very end of her life to hear that. That the well done, the welcome home of, uh, of, um, of the prodigal son, the kill the fattened calf, that it is very good, that those words still belong to her. Sure, her life would be about forming and filling. It will take twists and turns, and it will be ups and downs, but the pleasure of God for her is no longer in doubt. Friends, that is the difference that Christmas makes. And i got to tell you, I think it was really monumental for her, but it was also monumental for me because I had the experience, once again, of remembering what it is not just to receive the light, but to be a part of it. To be some small part of the recreative, renewing work of God who still says all over the world this morning, let there be light. Let there be light. What does that mean for you tomorrow morning? as your work week begins all over again. In the morning, maybe this afternoon, we'll wake up again and we'll have things written in our calendars and we'll have to-do lists and our lives will be formalized by important routines. Your greatest calling lies in none of those things. Your greatest calling instead lies in doing all of those things with this in view, pushing back the darkness. That it may be said of you as you go out throughout your day and and your lists and your Christmas season, here is a man, a woman, a child. Here is a boss, a mother, a friend. Here is a neighbor, maybe just a stranger. Here is someone that I met who is a light shown in the darkness. And behold, it was very good. Behold, the world was better for me knowing him or her. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We do pray, O oh God, that we would be a people um, who would be lights in the darkness, Father, but first, a people who have received the light of Christmas, the very good that Jesus came to give us. We pray, Father, that we would know what it is to have you work in the darkness and emptiness of our own hearts, that we would hold out the emptiness to you, Oh God, and that you would, in the midst of us, in the midst of our friends and family, that you would shine the light of Jesus Christ into the world that we are a part of. We pray this for your sake. Amen.